Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders' office clearly altered public records in Podium Gate. We have such a great show for you today. Representative Andy Kim tells us about primarying a sitting Democratic senator, one who has been indicted multiple times, as he runs for Senator Menendez's seat. Then we'll talk to Vermont Congresswoman Becca Blint about negotiating Republican disarray in Congress. But first, we have the Washington Post columnist, Dana Milbank. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Dana Milbank. Molly, it is a delight and a pleasure as always. We woke up on Saturday, absolute destruction and carnage in the Middle East. There was no Speaker of the House in case the government wanted to write some checks. We have this pro Templar speaker, pro temp speaker, McHenry, who has wears a bow tie and is very adorable, but no one really knows what he can do, right? Yes, well, I agree. He is he is kind of adorable. He's cute. Yeah, yeah. He's a very he's a very little guy, and you know he's a, you know he sort of looks the part when you know in his side job he's in charge of the financial services committee, so he also looks really good for that job. And there's more than a few people running around Capitol Hill saying, "Couldn't he actually be the speaker?" You know, he's cute, and yeah. he's competent. I mean, it's just yeah. such a rare commodity up there that he actually knows the institution, he knows what he's doing, he doesn't you know necessarily 
necessarily give a lot of leeway to the insane people in his caucus. But anyway, for all the, those reasons, he absolutely can't become the speaker. Completely rules him out on all counts. But the whole thing, obviously, is a self-inflicted crisis, and so is the notion of paralysis. So, look, if there were, you know, God forbid, a situation where you actually had to have a Congress act immediately to right, you could declare war. So, yeah, of course you could do it. It's just sort of vague, you know, the, the way this was done after 9-11, just so they didn't decapitate our government. This guy is just supposed to preside over electing the new speaker. But guess what? With 218 votes, or now it's actually 217 votes because there are vacancies, you could just change the rules. You could do anything you want. So look, if, if there's something really had to be done, it could be done in a second. So yeah, I mean, I think when people are saying, you know, we're paralyzed and there are all these crises in the world that we can't react to. That is essentially Republicans trying to put pressure on their fellow Republicans to get the speaker thing done. It's not because uh, there's actually a, a fear of paralysis. Right. It does seem from all the reporting I've read that it doesn't look like anyone is going to get to 217 that easily. It sure doesn't. I can't tell you how many hours I've spent now in the bowels of the Capitol outside room <laughs> HC5, they call it, in the basement. You know, there's no windows, there's ventilation and plumbing, you know, running through there and <laughs> just, you know, a constant stakeout and, you know, you're sniffing to see what they're eating inside. It's just, you know, for, for this, you know, we went to college. Well, at least you did. <laughs> it's been pretty grim. It's very hard to see how they get out of this. Scalise doesn't have the votes. Jim Jordan doesn't have the votes. Kevin McCarthy certainly doesn't have the votes. But he might want to try to get them. Right. And that that basically freezes up the contest and prevents the other guys from getting votes. Of course, the moderates who are very good at squawking and, you know, you know, you know, flexing muscle don't actually do anything. Of course, they could reach out to Democrats to back a McHenry-like character and they'd be done with this in a minute. They've decided they've got to do it with uh, Republican-only votes. So the real question is, do they have the fight in the back room in the caucus and that goes on for days or weeks. And then they bring it to the floor when they you know, finally got the, the white smoke. Or do they actually go to the floor and, and slug it out there, which, of course, they don't want to do because it'll look like January all over again. Right. And originally there was some talk that Brett Baer was going to host a televised debate, which would have really made this whole thing a shit show of epic and fascinating proportion. But that was sort of squelched. Right. You could just go through what was the what was the decision making process? There, where you know, at least defending said, I know, let's bring in Brett Bear. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, so, yes, that was, I think that was supposed to be last night. So, they instead sat around what, what they call venting at each other, basically, still yelling at the eight disrupted everything and, you know, basically just, you know, getting a lot of things off their chest, but not making any progress. It is amazing. I mean, the comments, you know, I read something from a Jim Jordan supporter who said in Congress that the body isn't even cold yet. We need more time. I mean, this is like the fundamental problem with this Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, you know, Garrett Graves, who's smarter than your average bear in this caucus, a Republican from Louisiana, said, you know, at a minimum, they're losing weeks because of this. And it could be much longer than that. Right. So, you know, what's much longer than weeks? I, I guess that means months. <laughs> We've got this November 17th deadline for the next shutdown. And everybody is freely saying they're going to have to blow past that deadline. There is absolutely physically no way to get all 12 appropriations bills passed in that period of time. They're going to need another CR 
continuing resolution. And they've got maybe 10 people, 11 people in the caucus who say, under no circumstance will I vote for a continuing resolution. So it's determined not to work with Democrats. So we're coming up against the exact same thing again. So even if they somehow on Wednesday are able to miraculously come together behind a speaker, that same speaker is going to have virtually no power to avoid this coming car wreck. Yeah. And I think it's worth sort of pausing for a second and just looking at the forces at play here. Right. So you have McHenry, who certainly at least looks normal. You know, I don't know everything about him, but he certainly looks the most normal. Then you have Scalise, who has been in leadership. He did call himself David Duke without the baggage, perhaps not the greatest thing one can say about oneself, but it does read as less insane. And then you have Jim Jordan, right? So you have a continuum of like normal to batshittery, right? Yeah, I would say it's a continuum of crazy all through and through. Now, both Scalise and McHenry were in their day the extremists in the caucus. Oh, interesting. They were the rabble rousers. You know, they were the uh, Matt Gates of their time. And I don't think they've changed at all. I think it's just that there have been so many new iterations of crazy with each election cycle that, you know, what was crazy in 2010 is now totally, you know, dead center of the Republican Party. Something similar has happened with Jim Jordan. Nobody would mistake him for a moderate, but in this caucus, he was a McCarthy defender. He was essentially uh, part of the establishment and trying to rein in the excesses of the, the two dozen or so who are just trying to burn everything down. So in today's Republican Party, Jim Jordan even is kind of a moderate. That is true and also just terrifying. There are many things, Molly, to be terrified about. <laughs> I have a long list, which which I keep next to my uh, pharmaceuticals. <laughs> so now we think that they're going to have this meeting tonight. And then the, the sort of fantasy of the party leadership is that then they'll have a vote and it'll be done. But we all think that's not how it's going to go down, right? Yeah. And I mean, you, there, some people say it'll happen in the same way, you know, they say it has to happen. But when you scratch the surface, they say, I, you know, I just don't see how that actually happens. So, yeah, I mean, as of now, they're supposed to be voting Wednesday morning, but they don't even know, is there going to be a, a rules change first? Are they going to punish the eight people who ousted McCarthy? Are they even going to have a secret vote in the caucus? Or are they going to have a vote where they actually do the roll call? So we don't even know the parameters of the voting, let alone you know getting to the actual voting itself, where nobody has anything close to approaching a majority. So I think anybody who's saying this will be quickly resolved is being very optimistic. Now, one of the things that Matt Gates said when he was making the case against McCarthy was dishonest, but also true. So he said, you know, McCarthy really hasn't done anything. He's just named a few post offices. Now, this is true, right? The things that have come up in the House are we too partisan to get anywhere through the Senate or to get to Biden's desk? Right. It is true that they have named a few post offices. In fact, that was the last order of business before they <laughs> deposed him as speaker. I mean, you got to feel really lucky if you're the guy they named those post offices for. But it's also, I mean, it's a little rich for Matt Gates to be saying since he's the reason they're not able to do anything. So it is true. You talk about sort of must pass pieces of legislation, the appropriations process. Yeah, they've gotten a lot of messaging bills through that will not clear the Senate and certainly would be vetoed by 
the president. So, you know, I mean, you go right on down the list, you know, and as McCarthy had done saying, we abolished, we got rid of the 87,000 IRS agents. Well, right. no, you didn't. You passed a bill right. uh, that's, that's not going anywhere. So, I mean, it's been a, a spectacularly unproductive Congress. I mean, that's Senate and House alike. And that is in large part because there is no ability so far and the, re, the House Republican leadership to compromise. Look, in the Senate, there are 12 appropriations bills. OK, they're they're being prevented from coming to the floor by Ron Johnson and others. But they cleared the Appropriations Committee with lopsided bipartisan majority. So right. even now in, in these crazy times, it is possible to get everybody together and agree on something. So it just will somebody step aside and let that happen. And I think that really is the larger question is like, does any of this nudge, right, this Congress, this Republican House of Representatives towards bipartisanship or power sharing agreement or anything? Or are they just too terrified of primary contests? It's partially that. Maybe it's the disapprobation of their peers. But every night in the in the, in the bowels in the Capitol <laughs> or every day, Don Bacon from Nebraska, perfectly reasonable man, says, you know, talks. Yeah, yes, he's talking with Democrats. You know, maybe there could be changes to the House rules. I mean, talk and talk and talk, but nothing. They, they never actually do it. It would only take four or five of them at this point to actually reach out and do it. And that's sort of the the tragedy of the whole thing is, you know, Kevin McCarthy, had he made even a slight gesture right. to the Democrats, he didn't have to give away the store. He could have, you know, <laughs> right. just, a, just a, like, I'll give you another one or two on X committee. He could have picked off enough votes to retain the speakership. There's such a powerful allergy to it. And yes, they're afraid of the Fox News reaction, the Steve Bannon reaction, the possibility of primaries of, you know, of, of not being able to fundraise. But I think they may be more fearful than is even warranted. Clearly, they're afraid of their own shadows. And that's how we got Trump to begin with. But the only winner in this whole fiasco is Matt Gates, right? Because he got airtime. He seems MAGA among MAGA. He's in an R plus 7,000 district, so it doesn't matter. You know, nobody's primarying him from the right. I would think not. I mean, they do seem to want to kick him out of the Republican caucus, which, of course, will only give him more attention. You should see the way people chase him down the hallway. He came to the meeting last night and discovered they were going to take away everybody's phone to come into the meeting. He was so incensed by this. I guess he was worried they were going to bug his phone or something. He walks all the way back to his office to drop off his oh, phone Jesus and comes Christ. back again just so he can make another grand entrance besieged by reporters. So it is crazy how this street thug is now getting a bigger limelight than anybody else on Capitol Hill. So one of the things like Mike Lawler is a is a Republican in a Biden district, a D plus three, going to run against Mondaire Jones, who's my friend who used to have that seat. Lawler sees the writing on the wall, realizes that this is just terrible look for him and the 17 other Republicans who won in Biden districts, though, mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't care about them. But so he is out on MSNBC and CNN and in the mainstream media saying this is preposterous. This is terrible behavior. Right. Anything he can to save his job. And you could see like it used to be, you know, if this were a Nancy Pelosi Republican Party, Nancy used to give people dispensations to go and complain about things. You 
you know, she'd say, like, you know, you don't have to vote what's not your district. You know, the votes that an AOC can make are very different than the votes a Spamberger can make. You used to see that in the Democrat Party, but I don't think there's any kind of that kind of thoughtfulness in the Republican Party. But Lawler was complaining. Matt Gates is now fundraising off of his anger at Mike Lawler. I mean, doesn't this end in fiasco? Well, for Mike Lawler, I <laughs> right, I, I assume, assume so. yeah. I mean, he's sort of comical. Like each day, he comes in, like I'm going to come up with some new name for Matt Gates. You know, he walks out after the debate saying the eight assholes. Right. <laughs> Last night, he was saying Matt Gates is a vile human being. <laughs> was okay. That's <laughs> that may be true enough, but it's like he can't. You know, he's the one who was talking about the clown show, and I guess he figures if he just keeps insulting them, that will insulate him in some way. But come on, where's the action here? You can actually do the same thing that. Matt Gates and the other eight were doing, but you could do it for the cause of sanity if you really cared about it. Right. But nobody does. I don't want to, you know, ascribe motives. But if this happens time and time again and he, they never do anything, well, you have to wonder if they really are. Maybe they're down with the whole thing to start with. But I don't see how this works well for the lawlers of the world. Yeah. And quite frankly, fuck them. Is this like the actual moment when the leopards are eating their faces or is there more? I like that. Maybe Lawler will start uh, give him something new to, <laughs> to tag Matt Gates with. Tonight, I'm, I'm heading in there to hear his insult du jour. Yeah, I mean, they are sort of self-destructing, but come on. I mean, they were self-destructing in January. It, it never actually gets destroyed. The Republican brand is pretty toxic. But, I mean, OK, the Democratic brand isn't a whole lot better. I'm going to stop you here. The Democratic brand is not better than this. I mean, <laughs> I'm talking about in the assessment uh, of the American public. Right, that is true. hearing over and over again that not only is Biden senile, but he's also a criminal mastermind. Right. <laughs> it's very confusing. The rare senile uh, American to be a criminal mastermind. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, they're just being constantly fed this diet, you know, and the, you know, the borders are completely open and all the murders, and, you know. So, yes, of course, the, the Democratic brand is tarnished. That's the one thing that the Republicans are still good at is raising doubts that people have for the entire system. So, yeah. So I think the Democratic brand is better to the extent that, you know, there are persuadable voters out there, but it's all pretty ugly. Dana Milbank, that was really great. I'm sorry you have to go back to Congress. I feel I feel for you. Well, they've changed the room tonight. It's going to be in the Ways and Means Committee room at the Longworth Building. So at least we're out of the basement and onto the ground level. So I, I'm going to call this progress. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. 
Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Andy Kim represents New Jersey's 3rd Congressional District and is a candidate for the New Jersey Senate. Welcome to Fast Politics, Representative and current Senate candidate, Andy Kim. (laughs) Thanks for having me. We know each other for a long time, though not well, but I met you when you were first running for Congress like three terms ago, right? Yeah, that's right. It would have been by 2017 that we met. Yeah, you had an incredible story. You had worked. Tell us your story and how you got involved in it and then about your decision to run for Congress, because all of your backstory is really important and fascinating. Yeah, I'm a son of Korean immigrants raised in New Jersey in the district that I now have a chance to represent. I represent the district where I went to kindergarten, public school kid that went on to become a Rhodes Scholar, a PhD in international relations, and then became a United States diplomat and worked in diplomacy and national security. I was a career guy, not a political guy. I was, uh, you know, worked under both Republican and Democratic presidents. But in 2016, 2017, you know, I really felt like I needed to step up and, and do something. And in particular, my congressman of this district that I now represent, he was the the lead author of that health care repeal bill 2017 and, and authored the amendment that gutted the pre-existing condition protections. And at that time, you know, I was uh, we, my wife and I were expecting the, the birth of my second son. And he was having a, a lot of health issues already in the womb before he was born. And I was just really, you know, seized by this issue about health care and about pre-existing conditions. Yeah. And so I, I decided to, you know, step up and, and challenge my own congressman and do what I could. And uh, you know, I never ran for office before at that time, but I felt like I had to do something. 
and you won. And that son went on to be born and to be healthy, but to need heart surgery, right? Uh, well, yeah, he's been getting care. Didn't need surgery, but definitely been, you know, trying to improve his health. But it just kind of reminds us health issues of no fault of his own, right? Right. Pre-existing conditions that he was born with. Yeah. Yeah. And really important. And, and they were not able to repeal Obamacare in a really important moment there. But I, I do think it's really important what you said just now about how much you were a person who was a nonpartisan career diplomat, but who decided they had to do, they had to step out of that role and run for office because of the danger that was the Trumpism that has continued to infect the Republican Party. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, look, um, you know, I'm, I'm somebody that was was fiercely focused on the national security. You know, I, I served as a civilian out in Afghanistan and out there, you know, there was always this saying, you know, when you're when you're out there in Afghanistan, you know, no one cares if you're a Democrat or a Republican. Mm-hmm. And you know, I worked alongside people at the State Department for like a decade who were at my wedding, who still to this day, I don't actually know if they're registered Democrats or Republicans. Like we just yeah. did the But, you know, there was this kind of recognition of like, look, like, you know, despite the the problems that we have with partisan politics and, and you know, and, and the, the challenges on that front. Like we have to be able to get engaged. We have to find a way to to move forward. My boss at the State Department had this line that just still lingers in my mind. He says, you don't have good government unless you have good people working in government. Right. And I get it that politics is toxic and it makes a lot of people not want to do it, but we can't just seed the ground. You yeah. know, you can't just seed the ground to those that are just trying to make it toxic because they want it to themselves. Right. You know, don't want reasonable, thoughtful people to get in politics. So they're making it crazy, but we got to endure. So I was at home just absolutely infuriated about the situation in New Jersey. Infuriated. A Democratic senator indicted for a second time. The uh, facts of it are as damning as anything you've ever fucking seen. I am a partisan. I am a opinion columnist on the left. And I was so appalled to see my own party engaging in the very thing that we had said was wrong with Trumpism. And here you are, I said, who the fuck is going to primary this guy? We cannot be Democrats and have this guy run for re-election. Someone must primary him. And all of a sudden I look and it's you. So tell me, I have a feeling your thinking was the same here as when you ran for Congress. Talk to me. Yeah, I mean, in fact, you're right. It is almost identical now that I look back on it. You know, in in 2017, my congressman at the time released the MacArthur Amendment. I saw it all over the news and I turned to my wife and I said, I I think I got to do something here. And the next day I launched a tweet that said that I was considering running against him. And, you know, I I think I had like 21 followers on Twitter at the time. (laughs) You know, but I had no one in New Jersey politics had any idea who I was, but I just I felt like I had to do something, you know, run towards the fire. Right. And the situation that unfolded with Senator Menendez the other week, it felt almost identical. And it's a feeling I've only felt, you know, two or three times in my life. But I, I read it and I turned to my wife and I said, like, I think we need to do something about this. And I just felt compelled. I didn't feel like I needed to wait to talk it over with everybody. I'm going to just do what I did in 2017, which is trust my heart, trust my gut and say, like, I am going to do everything I can. So I, you know, sent out a tweet the, the day after 
almost identical to what I did in 2017. I didn't realize that till after I'd done it, that how similar the two episodes were. But um, I just, I knew that if I didn't do everything that I could, that I would probably regret it for the rest of my life. And here I am now, you know, a three-term member of Congress from New Jersey. You know, I have the ability to step up and, and, and try to show what leadership means, try to show that we could have a politics that can restore integrity. So, you know, that was just what moved me. It was obviously the, probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, spontaneous decision I've made in my career. And it's a big risk for me. Yeah, I feel like you're not a huge risk taker. <laughs> when I feel passionate about something, you know, when I said, you know, two or three big decisions I made, you know, the decision to run for Congress to, in the first place, that was a big risk. I had a newborn and an 18-month-old. Right. Before that, you know, the other big thing, I mean, you know, I volunteered to go to serve in Afghanistan, be embedded with the military at the height of the war in 2011. So that's pretty scary. But I feel it in my heart when I know that it's something that I feel passionate about. I am willing to take big risks for my country. Yeah. Primarying a sitting Democratic senator, even though there is more than reason here to do it, is actually quite scary, right? Yeah. I mean, look, it's intimidating in terms of just taking a step of, of this magnitude that I wasn't even thinking about. You know, it's not something I was planning towards. Again, it just is about doing the right thing and standing up for what I believe in. Doesn't matter if it's, uh, you know, a Democrat or a Republican. I believe that, you know, values hold consistent across the board. And so in the same way, I, you know, I, I, I worked under both Republicans and Democrats before. I'm willing to stand up to Democrats or Republicans if I feel like they're doing the wrong thing or if they are not uh, approaching the work with that heart of public service that it needs to be. So let's talk for a minute about one of the reasons that the situation with Menendez is both really scary and also one of the ways he's managed to sort of keep his job is because he's been known as the sort of top dog on foreign affairs, which is why this looks so incredibly bad <laughs> in every fucking way. You actually have a ton of foreign affairs experience because you were a career diplomat. Yeah, look, I worked my whole career in national security. You know, worked at the State Department, the Pentagon, at the White House National Security Council, out in Afghanistan and elsewhere. And I look, I, I even worked briefly as a staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when I was younger. And so I've seen this from a lot of different angles. And I have to say, you know, some of the allegations that were out there, especially about, you know, providing potentially sensitive information to the government of Egypt about the personnel at the embassy and in country. I mean, you know, again, those are our career diplomats. Those are people that I worked alongside or the types of people I worked alongside. People are putting their lives at risk to serve in different posts or, or around the world. And what we owe them and what the sacred trust is that we do everything we can to protect them and look out for them, keep them safe while they're doing you know, our country's work out there. Yeah, that allegation uh, against the senator was deeply alarming. I get it. It's not as eye-popping maybe as the, the pictures of the gold bars, but that is something that led me to say, hey, look, like, look, he, he absolutely has, you know, his right for his day in court and that presumption of, of innocence until proven guilty. But in terms of actually being able to continue to do this job as a senator, to sit on the Foreign Relations Committee still, even though he's not the chairman anymore, like that doesn't give me confidence that alleged here is specific to the job. It wasn't something, some crime completely unrelated to his job. It was about the job. 
And so that's where I just felt like, you know, that, you know, that I, I was the first person from New Jersey, first official from New Jersey to call for him to step down. And it was because I just didn't feel like I could and the people in New Jersey could have confidence that, you know, he can do this job still right now. And I think that it's really important. Part of why Trumpism was so offensive to a lot of us. And I think Hillary Clinton said this best, public service is about serving the public. I mean, you are here to serve the public and it seems to me like Bob Menendez can no longer do that. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, we live in, in the time of the greatest amount of distrust in government in modern American history. I am a Democrat that won a district that Trump won twice. So I engage in kind of across the spectrum viewpoints. And you know, it's often called sort of a battleground district, at least my my old house seat. But like, it makes it sound like there's like a blue army and a red army duking it out every day. But like the reality on the ground is that the vast, vast, vast majority of people in my congressional district don't trust either party right now. And, you know, we have to get engaged with this idea of like, how do we restore that trust? And it's exactly this kind of stuff that is just eroding that trust. And like, you know, I've been saying this line a lot lately where I say, you know, I believe that the opposite of democracy is apathy. And so many folks, especially here in New Jersey, are getting close to that where like they see this stuff. And like, you know, this is something my neighbor said, like we, we talked about it on the day of the indictment coming out. My neighbor's just like, that's Jersey. You know, that's Jersey <laughs> politics. And I just like, it breaks my heart. Well, you were like, that's not New Jersey. Let's make it not New Jersey politics. It doesn't have to be. You know, like I, I'm tired of my state being this like laughing stock around the country for right. politics and our reputation. And just like, we got to stop it. So like, you know, that's, you know, that's just the kind of, this is like a break glass, you know, moment for me. <laughs> Where I just like people in New Jersey are fed up. And frankly, you know, the reaction all over the country. I mean, you know, in the first week after I made this announcement, we raised about a million dollars from people all over the state, all over the country. I think because people all over the country feel this way too. Even if they're not from New Jersey, they see this and they're just like, how is this America right now? Like, how is our yeah. politics, you know, continuing to have these kind of problems? So I saw some polling. And again, I really don't believe that the polls know what they're doing because a lot of this polling has been so wrong. But I just I saw polling that showed you way ahead. Talk to us. Way ahead of a sitting incumbent. Yeah, look, um, I, I think the polling, uh, you know, I saw it too. I think there were one or two, I think two different polls that came out last week that that you know, were encouraging, showing that, you know, the people in New Jersey, A, were paying attention and had seen a lot of this information. I mean, I guess, you know, it was, it was kind of everywhere. So I feel good about that, that people are informed, but also that they knew who I was and that they saw that contrast. And, you know, I saw, you know, people online saying that, like, look, like, you know, Andy's somebody that has been building a, his, his whole you know, career around this issue about integrity. They cited how, you know, I've been leading the charge on, you know, banning members of Congress from owning and trading individual stocks. Yes, that's a, something I'm passionate about. Go on. Yeah, uh, you know, and so like, you know, the, the hold that in contrast with what we had heard of the allegations, I am somebody that's at least been in politics long enough to know that you can't take anything for granted. I'm grateful for the the early response. And now I think the need is to keep the pressure on. I mean, look, I mean, he's he's built a war chest of nearly $8 million. He's continuing to fundraise. I want to make sure that we are strong enough to be able to, you know, get that word out there and to, you know, to really withstand uh, the pressures of a statewide campaign in, in a state of 9 million people and two of the biggest media markets in the country with New York and Philly. 
So there's a lot that needs to happen, but hopefully what we want, what I'm hoping to build is the largest grassroots mobilization in New Jersey's history. And I'm really just trying to show what it is that we stand for. Yeah. How would you vote differently? You're both Democrats, but you're very, you're very different person and very different politician. Yeah. I mean, look, I think one of the issues that we talked about, which is about the issues of like good governance, anti-corruption, and that's something that I've been really leading on, really making sure that we're taking those steps on ethics reform, uh, that we're prioritizing these issues that I know are so central because I honestly believe like if you can't fix the issues of, of big money and dark money and politics, that impedes our ability to get things done when it comes to gun violence prevention or, you know, on, on, on so many other issues. You know, another issue where, you know, I just feel like I, I had different opinions and, and clashes is about, you know, for instance, like prescription drug costs and other things like that when it comes to healthcare. So, you know, I do feel like there's certainly going to be differences there. There's going to be differences on foreign policy, as as we've seen how he's been handling that uh, on a lot of different issues. Whereas, you know, I, I approach things often from a much more comprehensive approach, really try to make sure we're engaged in the diplomacy that we need. But, you know, before we get to a lot of that, you know, the core central argument right now is about integrity. And I think that a lot of people in New Jersey, you know, we can talk the issues and that's going to be important. But ultimately, they want to know is what's in your heart? Like, why are you doing this job? How can I trust you to make the right decisions for my family, you know, when push comes to shove? And I, I think that that's, that's where really right now the fissure is. And, and I hope to show that contrast. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you will come back. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I absolutely happy to come back anytime. Becca Belent represents Vermont's sole congressional district. Welcome to Fast Politics, Congresswoman. Thank you. You're the lone Congresswoman from the state of Vermont. I feel like the Vermont delegation, like you guys are my people. You know, <laughs> I've yeah. had your senators yeah. and you, uh, your guys are frequent flyers here, but I wanna ask you, what is happening in the United States House of Representatives right now? Oh, Molly, it's terrible. <laughs> so ex explain to our listeners. Okay, yeah, I'll break it down for listeners. Yeah. We're in this situation right now because the Republican Party has not dealt with their extremist MAGA way of the yeah. party because they've taken over. That's what's going on here. This is a civil war within the party. And if they had dealt with Trumpism, if they had dealt with people within their party who don't believe in the Constitution upholding the law, we wouldn't be in this situation. And McCarthy also really made an incredibly stupid agreement back in January, agreeing to a rule change that said one person could call for his ouster. I mean, it's ridiculous. You can't govern that way. A member of the press was asking me the other day, are you surprised that McCarthy is out? I said, no, we all know it would end up here when you have that kind of a rule and you bend over backwards to accommodate the extremists, they're going to eat their own. And so it's really frustrating to watch. And as I've said to Vermonters time and time again, the hardest part for me is watching the moderates, the people who say that they're moderate, who say they're interested in governing, they don't stand up to the extremists. That's the hardest part for me because they'll say privately, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible for us. We need to bring the extremists. We need to get them you know, out of our party. This isn't good. And yet they vote in line with them repeatedly. We got to deal with this reckoning 
sometime, unfortunately, it's right now when, you know, we've got a bunch of things happening internationally, but they've got to figure out the path forward. We're here as partners, but they've said they don't want our help. Yeah. I mean, it would have been so easy for McCarthy to have made any kind of deal. Yes. I mean, his numbers are he only needed, you know, what, five, six. Exactly. And Leader Jeffries did make those overtures. Like, let's talk about some kind of power sharing agreement. Let's talk about equalizing membership on committees. Like, there are things that we can do here. And and once again, McCarthy said, no, I don't need you. Well, clearly he right. did. And I think he didn't realize the extent to which he had burned all of his bridges by going back on every deal that he made with both the Democrats and the Senate and the and the White House. Right. You can only do that so many times before people say enough. We need somebody who is more trustworthy. So much of the discourse was like, why didn't Democrats save McCarthy? Why would they? Exactly. <laughs> Why wouldn't we? He screwed us over at every possible right. opportunity. And in what world, in what world would Republicans ever have given Speaker Pelosi, you know, if there was a, a tough race? Like, it just doesn't happen, happen, right? Yeah. This, is, this is absurd. And this comes back to my original, you know, premise here, which is essentially there is one group that's interested in governing. And right now that's the Democrats. We are interested in government, having, you know, functioning governing, keeping the government funded, making sure programs are working. And then you've got a group that is is not interested, actually, in that. And so, again, why would we continue to prop up someone who said in the the hours in the darkest hours of January 6th, oh, I'm done with this guy. I'm done with Trump, you know, and then made even stronger statements in the days following and then a few weeks later, he's at Mar-a-Lago kissing the ring. So how can we possibly believe that he's going to be somebody long term who's going to deal with the real rot in the party? The case Republicans were trying to make was that McCarthy would be better for Democrats than Jim Jordan. And I'm going to go on a limb here and say I'm not convinced he would be. Yeah. We're not either, because if you look at what he allowed his extremists to do, so anti-abortion, so anti-LGBTQ, so anti the poor and the most, you know, neediest of us, you know, among us in the country. Cutting the CR by 30 percent. Exactly. 30 percent cuts to government would impact every single American who receives any kind of, of supports from the federal government. It's not fiscally responsible to do that. And so... Yeah, it's one of the things I was saying to folks back home. How could it be worse? I would rather have us be able to say, look, if the Republicans elect Jim Jordan, right, somebody who is in the thick of it in January 6th, right, the committee knows that he knew a lot more than he's saying he knew, right? We we know that he wouldn't comply with subpoenas. Like, if that's who they choose as their guy, then let's see it for what it is. Whereas I feel like McCarthy was putting a Band-Aid on this gaping chest wound. And enough already, enough with this dance. You know, it's so interesting when you say that, because I really do. It does really feel like McCarthy kept saying, well, I'm a moderate, I'm a moderate. He was holding impeachment trials of Joe Biden. He started an impeachment hearing. I mean, that's not moderate. That's insane. And when you've got someone like Ken Buck, who is no liberal, (laughs) saying the Biden impeachment inquiry is a sham, Right. I mean, it was pure 
pure politics and pandering to the most extreme members of his conference. And so it is it is a reckoning that I thought honestly would have come before now. And we'll see what emerges from from their meetings. I don't see how either Jordan or Scalise gets to 218. I really don't. But if they do eventually elect Jim Jordan, which you're making 18 vulnerable Republicans vote for a guy who is at best a crime ignorer. Yes. Well, I mean, so I sit now with him on judiciary. He's the chair. He's been using the committee to try to figure out ways to get Donald Trump off the hook in his you know, legal proceedings. That's how he's using our committee. If this is the guy they choose, let's have this out in the open for, for Americans to see. There's a lot of clarity there if he gets elected. Exactly. I mean, this stuff terrifies me. It is the, the enablers terrify me, the people who know better, the people who see it and understand how dangerous it is, but do not seem to understand that they have to use their voices because it means more from them coming within the conference than it means for any of us, right? They just tune us out. If you had the folks saying, do we believe in the Constitution or do we not? Do we believe in the rule of law or do we not? Or are we simply, you know, an arm of Trump Incorporated? Yeah. (laughs) Jesse just sent me that George Santos has endorsed Jim Jordan. Yes, But the thing that the House is supposed to be doing right now is the budget. Talk to us about where you guys are with the budget and why this is a complete shit show. Well, so if you remember, there was an agreement to prevent a horrible default back in June. And as part of that deal, you had spending agreements being made between the House, the Senate and the White House, basically saying, here is the amount of money that we're going to spend to fund government this year, right? I think two weeks after that agreement was signed into law, already they were backtracking and saying that they're actually not going to honor that agreement. And so you had the Appropriations Committee and other committees of jurisdiction in the House trying to build a budget based off of those numbers. And that's when the Republicans came back under McCarthy and said, no, no, no. We're not going to agree to those things that we already shook on and signed and, and signed this law. We actually want 30% cuts to the budget. So we don't have a working budget right now. And anything that we pass under the extremists is going to be dead on arrival in the Senate, right? That's the piece that they don't seem to understand. It baffles the mind. I came up through my state legislature and I used to say this to my senators all the time. Guys, if we can't get it through the other chamber, we got nothing. So can we please be communicating, not just across the aisle, but across chambers to see what is actually possible. And it's just been a whole lot of wasted time. Only way to get things passed in this House would be to craft legislation that is more bipartisan or nonpartisan. And there are certainly things like Israel, where both parties, there's very little daylight between them. But that can't happen because these Republicans are so afraid of primary contests, right? Yes. Some of it is fear about primary contests. And some of it is just actually just fear that when you have a former president who is willing to take to social media and basically sick the dogs on, you know, other Americans, like how could they feel safe? Right. Right. And so it is both things. It is worrying about their own political careers 
and, and putting that above the country. And it is also this genuine concern that Trump broke all of the rules of engagement around politics. And it's fine to dehumanize people, to demonize people. I mean, when you see him in that speech the other day when he was mocking the horrible, brutal attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, on Paul Pelosi, like this is a depraved individual. And so there's a reason why people within the Republican conference are wanting to distance themselves from him, but are afraid to do so. Now, I'm not excusing the lack of courage, believe me. When you come right down to it, the whole charade of the moderate Republicans falls apart when you look at the agenda that they passed. It was a really nasty, cruel agenda that was essentially looking to take away supports from low-income families and schools, taking away nutritional assistance, attaching riders for abortion bans for every piece of legislation, constantly attacking the LGBTQ community, right? These are not serious people who are interested in actually coming together. I don't even want to say in a bipartisan merit. I just want them to be based in reality, honestly. The bar is pretty low. Like, based in reality, you can't seem to do math and you can't get anything through if you don't have the votes. And does it really work for you to be facing yet another government shutdown? Right. There's no serious of purpose here. Well, the goal here is just to raise money. Right. Yes. And we saw that that was so interesting in the debate on the floor. And that's what was, you know, it was Republican versus Republican on the debate on the floor about the speaker. And they were pointing out that Matt Gates and others were using the speakership issue to raise money, even while we were on the, the floor of the House debating what should happen. Right. And it's a real problem that I have when I see many members of the press said, oh, well, we learned from Trump. Like we learned that, you know, we have to take this more seriously. We have to, you know, treat candidates like Trump in a different way. But I'm not seeing that yet. When I step out of the House of Representatives and walk down that big, long set of steps in the front, who are they chasing down? The press is chasing down Matt Gates. Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos. It's funny because you're the second person today to talk about the press chasing down yeah. Matt Gates. So do you feel like on some level the mainstream media is incentivizing this kind of bad behavior? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I it pains me to say that I have I have friends who are journalists. I know they try their level best to get it right. But they have also shared with me that it is the headlines that drive the news and not the other way around. And so. They do chase the conflict entrepreneurs, right? They do chase people like Nancy Mace, who, you know, she's not a moderate. Right. And yet they continue to refer to her as someone who's, you know, governing minded. And so we have to stop giving these people a platform because they're not the ones actually doing the work of passing legislation to keep government open. They're simply creating problems for their own ends not because they're there to serve their constituents. And I wish they would stop, you know, literally chasing them down the street to get some kind of comment from them. It's absurd. It's a sort of Mobius strip of, of self-reinforcing properties. But I just strategically for a minute, so Matt Gates fundraising off of his fight with Mike Lawler, who is one of these vulnerable House Republicans. Aren't these Republicans like 
still dealing with a normal electorate, won't sooner or later these people turn? I mean, voters don't like this, do they? I mean, no, no, they don't. They don't like it. And so here's the thing. So we got to that crisis around the funding of government and the continuing resolution. We had, you know, a discharge petition that had been signed by every single Democrat. And we only needed five Republicans to sign it that simply said, here's a clean continuing resolution. Let's keep the government open. Did they do that? No. So we got to the brink of shutdown hours before and they can't help themselves. They can't seem to realize that they are contributing to the to the chaos and the dysfunction. And so I thought it was really rich that Lawler and some others were blaming Democrats for the chaos. That is absurd that they could have diffused all of this around the continuing resolution and the funding if they had simply signed the discharge petition. It didn't require them to do any, make any brave statements on the floor, didn't require them to do any backroom deals with anyone. They simply needed to put their signature down on a piece of paper that said, hey, let's fund the government. And they weren't even willing to do that. Yeah, but they weren't willing to do it because why do you think? Well, I think they want to have it both ways, right? They don't want to draw the ire of Donald J. Trump, right? right? But they also want to act like they're actually moderate voices within Congress. Well, I'm sorry, you can't do both those things. You cannot be a moderate who actually is trying to appease and enable Donald Trump and his supporters. You can't. The two are are mutually exclusive. Yeah. Do you think they're still just so afraid of Trump or do you think there's sort of more nuance here? Well, they're worried about smear campaigns. They're worried about what happens if if they get a knock on their door from people who are activated by something they saw on social media. Look, you know, they saw what happened on January 6th. Right. They saw the videos of people yelling, hang like Pence, hang like Pence, right? right? And there's just so much disinformation. But honestly, I think about this a lot when I'm sitting in that chamber. I think, what are the conditions by which people will be more courageous, will have more metal and more backbone. And I, I don't know if you and I have talked about this before, but my, so my grandfather was killed in the Holocaust. And I think a lot about what is it that makes good people not act? And you can look at any movement that is around demonizing or dehumanizing people uh, around the globe, right? What is it that enables those people to just go along with what they know is wrong. And I'm, I'm not trying to liken Lawler's, the role that he's playing here with Nazis. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that when you know that it can be better and should be better, you should do better whatever way that you can. And that's what worried me about coming off of this speaker vote, that they didn't seem to learn the lesson that they created this problem by not standing up to their extremists. And it's not going to go away. Yeah. It's not. Right. Especially, again, if the press continues to lift up the voices of Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan, there are all these mini Trumps that are coming in his wake. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Drunk Fast, there's 
really, really important things happening in the world, and yet people are still discussing the dumbest shit possible, are they not? So a very, very fulsome piece of reporting on our vice president published in the New York Times Magazine this week by Ested Herndon, who is a very accomplished and important political journalist. In it, there are a number of people, some speaking anonymously, some speaking on the record. One thing that stuck out to us brought to our attention by Organizer Memes, one of my favorite accounts on the social media site formerly known as Twitter. I'm all for anonymously shit-talking your boss, but obviously complaining about a black woman who is constantly under global scrutiny, taking time for hair care is racist BS. And I'm going to read to you, a member of Harris's staff remarked on the amount of downtime the vice president schedules on trips, which includes an inordinate amount of time dedicated to hair care. Well, listeners, I would like to make a confession, I myself spend an inordinate, and Jesse can attest to this. It's on my calendar all the time. An inordinate amount of time on hair care, and I am not even the vice president. So that is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.